0: Firstly, I would like to thank the Royal Dublin Society for the opportunity to study this fascinating collection. The archivist Natasha Cern was always welcoming and generous with her knowledge of the collection, as was the former librarian, Gerard Whelan, and the current librarian, Lara Musto. In addition to the digitised RDS publications, which are available online, I relished reading the archival sources, such as the handwritten minutes of the Committee of Manufacture and the scrapbooks, which included tickets, handbills, cartoons and clippings. So this lecture will concentrate upon the two Royal Dublin Society exhibitions which took place in the 1860s, namely the Exhibition of Fine Arts and Oriental Arts of 1861 and the Exhibition of Manufactures, which followed in 1864. Both reveal the interactions between the society, manufacturers, retailers and consumers. This decade was a pivotal one in the history of the RDS, which three governmental reports inquired into how scientific design and education should be funded and conducted in Ireland Neither of the 1860s exhibitions were on the scale of the 1853 Great Exhibition, organised by the RDS in conjunction with, and mainly funded by, the railway magnate Dargan. I will refer in passing to that landmark 1853 event, however the topic will be amply covered by the forthcoming bicentenary events which will take place in 2023. The 1860s exhibitions, which were organised solely by the RDS, provide a useful case study with which to explore the aims and hopes of the society during this challenging time. They also revealed the society's considerable organisation skills and its progressive and improving aims. What did these displays look like? Did they generate sales and influence taste? Did they succeed in their aims of encouraging and improving manufacturing in Ireland? Did they prosper financially? These are the questions that I've attempted to address with my research. Both exhibitions took place at a time when the Royal Dublin Society and other cultural institutions in Ireland were under scrutiny from external bodies, such as the London-based Department of Science and Art. The amalgamation and rationalisation of Irish institutions was mooted as staff at both the RDS and the Museum of Industry were asked to validate the utility of their respective institutions. The minute books of the Manufacturing Committee proved an essential primary resource for tracing the conception and organisation of the RDS exhibitions. The membership of this committee was comprised of businessmen, professionals and members of the landed class. A close reading of the newspaper coverage of these exhibitions also reveals the class tensions and competing factions that were at play. Before I move on to the 1860s and exhibitions, I want to acknowledge the writers and academics whose work on the Royal Dublin Society and other Irish cultural institutions informs this research. Historians of the Royal Dublin Society include Stephen Gwynne, Kevin Bright, John Turpin, Henry Barry, Fergus Mulligan and Richard J. Moss. Ashling Malloy's paper on the origins of the ceramic collections at the National Museum of Ireland and Clara Cullen's research on the Museum of Irish Industry are also invaluable. Gerald's 1997 article exploring the interplay between the RDS and the London institutions approached the topic in an interesting, anti-imperialist manner. The RDS cannot be considered in isolation from the histories of other societies, cultural institutions and associations. The work of Mary Burke and Irish Museums, Elizabeth Crook on the history of the National Museum of Ireland, and Sharon Murphy's recent history of the Natural History Museum in the mid-19th century formed the backdrop of this research. Mairead Dunleavy's Pomp and Poverty, A History of Silk in Ireland, revealed the history of many of the manufacturers who featured in the exhibits. Charles Mullins' work on the history of Irish science and Juliana Adelman's History of the Communities of Science in 19th century Ireland were most useful in providing an overview of the complex scientific networks of the period. Whilst Janice Helen's book on home industries and Stephanie Rain's publications on industrial exhibitions and in Irish consumer taste provide a useful backdrop with which to consider the 1860s exhibitions. Histories of the South Kensington Museum and Victoria and Albert Museum by Julius Brynert and Anthony Burton and general histories of industrial exhibitions by Purbeck and others help to contextualise the RDS exhibitions. In Purbrook's introduction to an edited volume on the Great Exhibition of 1851, she states that the London exhibition is viewed as a watershed. Its success from an aesthetic and design standpoint is disputed, though coming halfway through the century, its representation of modernity and the industrial might of the British Empire is much studied. It was not, however, without precedent. Many of its aims were addressed by previous exhibitions in other countries, albeit on a smaller scale. I would include the RDS Exhibitions of Irish Manufacturers, which took place between 1834 and 1847 in this group. According to the RDS itself, the Irish International Exhibition of 1850 was, and I quote, the first, it's believed of its kind, ever held in the United Kingdom. Indeed, Henry Cole, the organiser of the Great Exhibition of Works of Industry of All Nations, visited the 1850 Dublin Exhibition to research the manner in which the Irish Exhibition was laid out and planned. The report, which is held in the Royal Collections Trust, is telling in its analysis of the Dublin Exhibition. Over 20 pages, Cull evaluated the classification of the Irish Exhibits, wall space, out-of-doors arrangements, numbering and ticketing, labels, catalogue, admission, circulation of visitors, expensive working machinery and and certificates. The tone of Cole's observations jarred with some of the exhibitors and perhaps preempts later intrusions into the running of the RDS by London-based Department of Science and Art. According to Cole, the arrangement of the Irish catalogue, and I quote, seems to have been determined by accidental order in which the articles arrived. His tone did not go unnoticed and a letter published in The Nation on the 20th of July 1850 from an exhibitor called Michael O'Reilly of 37 South Great Georgia Street, refers to cockney sneers and warns that Cole cannot make comments with, and I quote, impunity and that he must have made this charge in gross ignorance of the facts if he did not willfully misrepresent them. O'Reilly is listed in street directories as a druggist and chemist. He was also an inventor and regular exhibitor in the RDS. I've included this analysis of the earlier exhibition here as it anticipates later conflicts and clashes between Irish institutions and societies and the English government departments and their officials. The following notice announcing the exhibition of Fine Arts and Oriental Art appeared in the Freeman's Journal on the 15th of May 1861. Long lines of glass cases will contain jewellery, plate, laces, poplins, china, porcelain, fancy articles in wood and leather, musical instruments, etc. Amongst the exhibitors are Forrest and Son, Atkinson, Allen, Kerr, Skates, Eltonton, Mason and Co., Fry and Co. A handsome fountain in the centre of the hall and from which water will constantly be playing has been sent by Edmondson and Co., who will also contribute a variety of beautiful articles in metal. The skates mentioned in this notice was the firm of John Skates, located at College Green Dublin, a manufacturer of musical instruments who exhibited treble and baritone concertinas. Fry & Co were an poplin', Irish poplin manufacturer. Forrest and Sons was a clothes shop at 100 and 101 Grafton Street. A full programme of musical events were part of the 1861 exhibition and newspaper articles highlighted the system of gaslighting and illuminated that illuminated the site. The logistics of organising the 1861 and 1864 exhibitions was considerable given the quick turnaround. Applications to display were issued three months before the event. The application forms requested the following details, name, type of goods, section, space required. Applicants were asked to indicate whether they were a producer, importer, designer, inventor, manufacturer or proprietor. Both events necessitated the international transportation of hundreds of works of art and the preparation of spaces for the display of manufactured goods. The 1861 exhibition included a display of old masters, modern works, watercolours, prints and sculpture, in addition to loans from the Royal Collection, Sotheby's and the South Kensington Museum. Hundreds of businesses, designers, and manufacturers exhibited their wares. The classification system applied to the exhibits started with animal and vegetable substances used in manufacture, manufacturing machines and tools, moving on to surgical instruments, then a wide variety of manufactured goods ranging from muslins and damask to works in precious, precious metals and glass and porcelain. The collections within the art and industrial division of the Science and Art Museum, which was to eventually become the National Museum of Ireland, mirror in many ways this arrangement. It contains metalwork, silver, gold, brass, bronze, scientific and mathematical instruments, costume, jewellery, ceramics and glass, furniture and musical instruments. The link between shopping and exhibitions is emphasised in publications such as the Exhibition Expositor, which was published on site at the 1851 exhibition. Here we see advertisements for the newly opened shop of Richard Allen, located on Lower Sackville Street. The notice emphasises the building's architecture, stating that it is considered by many superior to any building of its class in London. The copy also refers visitors to the exhibition whom it promises will find ready stocked to their liking. The location of Allen's display within within the exhibition pavilion is also given. This publication also advertises the opening of Ton Burns' new department store at 47 Mary Street. They address strangers to the city, alerting those who are visiting for the exhibition to the variety of departments within their store. The arrangements of various departments in many ways mimic that of the industrial exhibition and this symbiotic relationship between the exhibitions and the retailers is emphasised in exhibition catalogues and in daily newspapers for all industrial exhibitions. Visiting the city's shops was another part of the exhibition experience and points to the notion of shopping as a leisure pursuit for the rising middle classes. There is some evidence of the type of enterprises discussed by Janice Helland in her book British and Irish Home Home Arts and Industries 1880-1914. For example, Mrs. Doherty of Castle Street Sligo displayed, and I quote, Ornaments of horsehair, all made by the poor peasant girls in the glens and mountains of Sligo and exhibited for the benefit of poor peasant workers. Lady Louisa Ty exhibited lace made by the poor women of Inishtig, County Kilkenny. However, the majority of exhibitors were operating on a larger commercial and manufacturing scale, as suggested by the machines on display and advertised as being in operation in Ireland. The 1861 exhibition also included a travelling exhibition from the South Kensington Museum, displaying works in metal such as a 16th century Italian chased ormolu incense burner. Watches and jewellery included an Indian gold filigree ear pendant, coins and gems, portrait medallions and a large range of electroplated copies of works in metal. Doubtless this collection was sent with a view to the education of designers and artists. Indeed, electroplated objects feature in both 1861 and 1864 exhibitions, with the output of the firm of Elkington being displayed in several sections. The company's goods chimed with the South Kensington mode of instruction, which, as Turpin notes, preached the gospel of helping the artisan and of raising general artistic awareness. The company also did much to create and cater to the middle class aspirational taste for decorative and functional copies of plate and ornament. In 1859, Elkington's goods were available exclusively at Waterhouse and Company at 24 College Green, Dublin. And they also advertised that, and I quote, the good old silver, solid silver that our forefathers prized so highly is now almost superseded by Elkington's patent electroplate. Elkington were represented not only in the Industrial Exhibition, exhibitions and the capital's main shopping street, but also in the collections of the Dublin Museum of Science and Art, which would eventually become the National Museum of Ireland. This is evidence in objects such as this ewer, adapted from a design by Francis Brio, which came into the museum in 1882. Other manufacturers whose objects featured in both industrial exhibitions include Belique, who in 1864 showed earthen and stoneware in dinner, toilet and table services made by moulding, press and dye, or pressure from powdered clay. As Stephanie Rains noted in her volume, Commodity Culture and Social Class in Dublin, 1850-1916, industrial exhibitions may have done more to stimulate spending among the middle classes of Dublin than they did to generating manufacturing excellence. Some manufacturers bemoaned the fact that participation in exhibitions did not translate into immediate sales. The committee attempted to to reassure manufacturers at a public meeting held in the boardroom of the Royal Dublin Society on September the 23rd, 1861. The Irish Times reported that, and I quote, It was stated by one gentleman at the meeting that he had not sold a shilling's worth of goods in the exhibition. But this is no criterion. Visitors go to the exhibition to see, not to purchase within its walls. Their orders are given after they have seen specimens of workmanship and perhaps months after the exhibition is closed. The exhibition of 1864 was confined to display of manufacturers of Irish origin. The rationale being that so soon after the international exhibition held in London in 1862, it would be hopeless to expect the foreign manufacturers would be willing to undergo the expense of preparing goods for one in Dublin in 1864. Analysis of this exhibition, with its emphasis upon Irish manufacturers, provides an ample opportunity to evaluate the state of industry in Ireland during the period. The committee also stressed that the exhibition would have a strong emphasis upon a machinery and its display, which was directed towards Irish manufacturers. The aim was that the displays of scientific and mechanical advances were target- targeted at the owners of factories and industries, who could use their visits as a research and fact-finding endeavour. Working machinery and, uh, and demonstrations form an integral part of, industrial exhibition, of the industrial exhibition experience. And whilst the existing photographic and print records often convey staid and static displays, we know from visitor observations that the exhibition hall could be a noisy and bustling place. The organising committee for the 1864 exhibition visited towns across the country in order to solicit prospective exhibitors and a delegation also travelled to Yorkshire and Lancashire in order to secure the participation of machinery manufacturers. This visit yielded yielded the participation of Wollenthouse and Rye, whose patent anti-explosive steam generator drove all the machinery in the 1864 exhibition. The 1864 catalogue states that machinery will be displayed at rest and in motion and the machinery court included a display by F. and o. Scott & Co. showing the process of, of linen manufacture by power on machines made by John Mason Globe Works Rochdale. Johnston & Carlisle put on a display of weaving linen by power loom using the iron spun and prepared from Irish flax while T. Robinson and sons Rochdale, England, exhibited their steam and woodworking machinery in operation. The audience experience of industrial exhibitions is difficult to ascertain. Beyond attendance numbers, we have to glean the public's responses through passing mentions in letters, diaries, or in anecdotal responses or notices in newspaper articles. Visitor numbers showed that interest in these exhibitions was consistent throughout the decade, with 208,000 visitors attending the 1861 exhibition alone. Anecdotal responses or notices in newspapers can sometimes provide clues as to who the audience was. The following notice appeared in the Freeman's Journal on the 19th of August 1861. Lost in the Royal, at the Royal Dublin Society in the art exhibition or on leaving, a, or on leaving a Cambric handkerchief with a deep border of shamrocks worked on the edge, with the initials BBW in the corner. The finder will please send it to or leave it at 14 Marion Square South or leave it with Mr Russell, Art Exhibition, Caldera Street. If required, a reward will be given. The Marion Square address mentioned in this notice was that of John Edward Walsh, a judge and writer who published an account of jewelist gamblers and highwaymen in Dublin's liberties. The handkerchief most likely belonged to his wife, Blair Belinda Walsh, and the event was a special evening opening of the exhibition to the Association for the Promotion of Social Science. During this event, only members of the Association and RDS were permitted entry. The Association, which pursued issues in public health, industrial relations, penal reform and female education, held its Congress in Dublin in that year. Its founder, Lord, its founder, Lord Brown, was in attendance. That industrial exhibitions were of interest to women acknowledged through the introduction of the Ladies' Season tickets for the Exhibition of Manufactures, Machinery and Fine Art in 1864. Not all the attendees of the exhibition were drawn from the upper class, like Blair Belinda Walsh. The Committee of Manufacturers were keen to have a reduced entry fee on certain days, targeting what they called the working classes and lower orders whom they felt would be more available on Saturdays. The behaviour of the lower orders in public places was much debated during this period, with the decision to open the Botanic Gardens to the public on Sundays forming a backdrop to the governmental reports. The notion of who can visit the RDS facilities was an ongoing one in public platforms. Much of this feeds into conceptions of a national museum and library and who had the right to access collections and facilities funded through the public purse. What happened to the goods that were displayed in these exhibitions? The terms and conditions associated with the 1864 exhibition included the stipulation that goods should be so- sold but could not be removed from the exhibition site until the final closure date. Most were taken back into stock, into the stock of the manufacturers and shopkeepers. The minutes and regulations deal at length with the stipulation surrounding the prompt removal of items from the exhibition hall once closed. The following plan gives us an indication of what the RDS Museum and Spaces looked like during the 1860s and shows how the space had developed. The plan of the slice was published as part of the 1864 Select Committee Report on Scientific Institutions in Dublin. It included sheds and yards which were adapted for various exhibition and display purposes during the 1860s. Locos- locations marked include the Shelburne Yard which was roofed over in 1864 a lecture theatre and laboratory, Clare Yard, and an agricultural hall and museum. Morris Craig's essay on the Society's buildings refers to the complexity of the site and the confusing series of additions and alterations which were made in the 1860s. The new Natural History Building had opened, however, the RDS continued to hold exhibitions, lectures, and talks at the Leinster, Le, at the Leinster House Complex. There was not a wholesale move of displays and exhibitions to the new Natural History building. Indeed, the Natural History Museum, according to the testimony of Alexander Cart in 1863, was not, and I quote, not at present placed out for exhibition in consequence of want of funds for the purchase of necessary cases. The minutes of the meetings of the Manufacturer Committee include debates The minutes of the meeting of the Manufacture Committee include debates on the display of agricultural implements, manufactured and designed goods. The following images give some indicator as to what the spaces on the plan looked like in the 1860s. The RDS archivist, Natasha Cern and I, concur that this image most likely shows one of the galleries of the 1861 exhibition of Fine Arts and Ornamental Arts. The photographers, Miller and Simonton, Whose stamp appears on these prints were in partnership between 1857 and 1862, thus making the 1861 exhibition the most likely one depicted. The photographs show a crowded hang with walled space from floor to ceiling. According to Bright, the exhibitions held in Kildare Street in the 1860s were expected to cover their costs but not necessarily to produce a surplus. Private guarantors were required. And This, mainly Dublin-based group, provides a vivid picture of the business community's interactions with the society. Many work from premises in the city centre and an examination of their workshops and retail outlets gives an indicator of manufacturing consumer culture of the period. The controversy which surrounded the funding of the 1864 exhibition is particularly revealing demonstrating the overlapping and sometimes conflicting interests of businessmen, exhibitors and government administrators. The catalogue for the 1864 exhibition mentions that it was found necessary to cover in the Shelburne Yard, now called the Machinery Court. A detailed inventory of the other renovations which took place at Leinster House Complex in preparation for the 1864 exhibition includes Iron and glass building, covering of Shelburne Yard, new wooden gate from Kildare Lane into said building cost £1,697. Covered way from Shelburne Hall to Ground Floor Agricultural Museum and to Agricultural Hall, with tiled pavement and with door and entrance to museum and also large window cost £30. Four new windows large and small in Agricultural Museum cost £20. New sliding gates at entrance to exhibition building with bolts and two new turnstiles at same and sundry new locks and bolts on doors, £70. Four new lunette windows in roof of fine art gallery, £8. These accounts were signed off by Charles Allen, 108 Grafton Street, Andrew H. Baggett, the owner of a well-known wine, wine merchants, John Galley, whose kitchen range factory was located at the rear of of Dame Street, near Trinity Place. And Thomas Pym, Jr., a member of the well-established Pym family, whose many business interests included the poplin manufacturer and drapery, all were exhibitors in the exhibition. It was these renovations and alterations to the Leinster House complex which gave rise to scandal in the following year. The Freeman's Journal of the 10th of June 1865 announced that a meeting of the 1864 exhibition guarantors had taken place the previous evening at the Dublin Athenaeum, 33 Angle Street. This venue was described as a middle-class cultural institution which was established in 1860. The matter under discussion was the apparent failure of the previous year's exhibition to balance financially, thus making the guarantors liable for the shortfall. This was despite healthy tickets and relatively strong attendance. The matter was hotly debated and particular attention was paid to the renovations and additions to the RDS facilities, which were considered by the guarantors to be above and beyond the remit of a temporary exhibition fit-out. The list of guarantors, which appears in the 1864 catalogue, provides a snapshot of the businesses who were active during the period. 232 businesses contributed to the fund, with sums ranging from £10 to £300. The majority were Dublin-based, with only 36 giving addresses outside of the city. The fund totaled £10,236. It was created with a contingency in case, and I quote, funds received at the doors should fall sort of of its expenses. There be no funds in the Dublin society available. Those gentlemen will make up the deficiency. Several of the guarantors were also exhibitors and some were also committee members. There does not appear to have been any barrier to being both an exhibitor and a guarantor and indeed this was to prove problematic, especially for those businessmen who were on the RDS finance committee and who had signed off on the renovations. The dispute rumbled on until the end of the year with many meetings and differences of opinion. Some felt that all guarantors should be called upon, whilst others thought that those who resided outside of Dublin could not be expected to pay for amenities that they would never use. A final meeting of the guarantors took place on December the 7th, 1865. After much debate, it was suggested that the buildings erected by Grendon and Co of Drogheda, who were also guarantors for the exhibition, should either be sold or dismantled. No consensus was arrived at. However in the end the agricultural hall was removed to Bald's Bridge whilst the other buildings were either sold or broken up. During this period three reports or inquiries were conducted which were to impact upon the future of the RDS. In 1862 a report examined the Royal Dublin Society, the Museum of Industry and the System of Scientific Instruction in Ireland. In 1864 a report was published by the Select Committee on Scientific Institutions And finally, in 1868, a commission reported on the Science and Art Department in Ireland. I found these reports to be an invaluable source of first-person testimony, revealing what the conditions were like in the day-to-day running of the RDS Museum and also the organisation of the Society's exhibitions. A letter from Henry Cole to Sir Charles Beaumont Phipps Held in Prince Albert's official papers in the Royal Collection and dating from 1853, preempts the tone and line of question to be found in much of these reports. In it, he says, it is a difficult but interesting task to reconcile an Irish corporation to the surrender of public money. As a scientific body which received state aid, the Royal Dublin Society came within the orbit of the Department of Science and Art. In addition, this department also oversaw the Museum of Irish Industry, the Irish Geological Survey and the Provincial Schools of Science and Design. In 1862, an amalgamation of the Royal Dublin Society with the Museum of Irish Industry was suggested. By 1867, the Museum of Irish Industry had been suppressed in favour of the College of Science. The 1868 Commission explored the feasibility of a separate Department of Science and Art for Ireland. As per the 1868 proposals, the Royal Irish Academy would lose out with its museum and collections mooted to be moved to Leinster House. In 1877, the Government Department of Science and Art took over the buildings and collections of the RDS, including that of the defunct Museum of of Irish Industry. Gerald's study of the interaction of the Department of Science and Art with the Royal Dublin Society notes the complex machinations involving proposed murders and and rationalisations. He concluded that, And I quote, in the process, the RDS was effectively pushed out of active management of nearly all of the many activities it had assiduously created and nurtured for more than a century. The line of inquiry in government reports sought to rationalise and combine institutions where duplication was perceived. They questioned the need for two institutions. Much space in the reports was given to delineating the difference between popular and systematic lectures and courses. The latter concluded with an examination whilst the former was open to the general public, including women and children. The letterpress notice shown here announces a series of lectures to be given by Henry McManus, headmaster of the School of Art, on the subject of form and colour. The year of this lecture is not given and no notice appears in the national or city newspapers. Given that McManus returned to Ireland in the late 1840s and retired in 1863, the probable dates are in the late 1850s or the early 1860s. The survival of this, this document and a series of similarly striking letterpress notices within a scrapbook in the RDS archive may be the only record of these events in existence. Some lectures took place in the Theatre of the Royal Dublin Society and were free to the public. The notice also mentions that the course syllabuses could be obtained at both the Society's House and at the Museum of Irish Industry. As Cullen noted, the museum and its sometimes reluctant partner, the RDS, under the direction of the Committee of Lectures, offered courses of lectures on scientific subjects using the museums and lecture theatres of the museum and the RDS. The educational role of both institutes was debated with the merits of the occasional lectures, such as the intriguing course offered by the head of of the art school versus the longer series of instruction, which were examined and led to qualifications. The report from the Select Committee on Scientific Institutions from 1864 asked both staff asked staff in both the RDS and the Museum of Irish Industry whether or not the collections should be merged. E. Senior, a member of the Royal Dublin Society and a member of the Council of the Society felt that concentrated they would be more useful and their contents more available. While elsewhere we hear that, and I quote, The object of the science and art department is to afford assistance to the industrial classes in procuring instruction in science and to leave the middle and upper classes to their own education. We also find notions and conceptions of class and public utility debated. Both 1860s exhibitions took place during a period of debate as to whether or not the botanic gardens should be open to the public. Would they know how to behave? For example, with regard to the Sunday opening of the botanical gardens, we hear the following. And I quote, thousands of persons of middle and lower ranks are to be seen every fine Sunday enjoying the garden and the conservatories and the neatness of their dress is remarkable, as is the correctness of their behaviour. These debates and concerns were also heard with regard to attendance at the industrial exhibitions of 1860s and also in later debates questioning who had the right to avail of the Royal Dublin Society and Royal Irish Academy facilities and the need for a national museum and a national library. The debates surrounding these changes are encapsulated in the following cartoons, which, although later than the 1860s, lampooned the interference in Irish cultural affairs by English bureaucrats and institutions. Both appeared in PAT, the weekly satirical periodical published and printed in Dublin by W.P. Swan and also in its successor, the Irish diamond. The first cartoon depicts two bored-looking civil servants in an office surrounded by maps and papers. A calendar on the wall is titled Sporting Tissue. This was a racing form published on Saturdays. The cartoon is entitled How It Is Done. The following text appears. First treasury clerk, I say, Chappie, it's five minutes to four and we have, to- we have time to arrange that confounded Dublin museum. We have to put it somewhere and give the job to somebody second treasury clerk. Bless if I know where Dublin is, but stick the building somewhere or anywhere and give it. Give the contract to Snooks. He is an indifferent architect, but a jolly good tennis player, and it is done. In 1876, arrangements were made for the transfer of the Royal Irish, Ca- Irish Academy's collection to the Government Museum. In 1876, arrangements were made to the transfer of the Royal Irish Academy's collection to the Government Museum. The following cartoon deals with this matter. Printed in April 1883, it shows Irish art treasures being taken out of the Royal Irish Academy. We can see the Cross of Kong and a chalice are visible in the bag of swag. The man who carries them down the ladder wears a headband round his hat emblazoned with the words South Kensington, whilst a figure called the Royal Dublin Society waits with open arms, hoping to catch the treasurers. A policeman watches proceedings, and his helmet reads Public Opinion. The caption underneath reads South Kensington. Look here, Dublin society, you just help me make off with these treasures, which I have an eye on, which I have had an eye on for so long. I will make it square with you. Or yes, all right, lower away. Bobby, hello, at it again. Why it's the same old man that took the mailbags from the from the ships in Kingston. Bigara, I must put a stop to your gettings on, Mibuko. These cartoons revealed that the future of the collections and of societies and organisations such as the RDS and museums were part of the public discourse. They also echo the the misgivings of the RDS and other association staff as to the role played by the London-based civil servants and populations. This final slide shows the cover of a notebook belonging to Thomas Longfield, keeper of the art and industrial section of the National Museum of Science and Art. Dating from 1888, 1888, it purports to be a list of art objects acquired by Her Majesty's government on the transfer of the collections from the Royal Dublin Society made by Thomas H. Longfield, Art and Industry Assistant, February 1880. The contents of this notebook are interesting, containing a list of expenses relating to a trip to Paris. However, they do not include the objects promised on the cover. It has been possible to trace some of the objects trajectory from exhibition or shop into the national collections. Indeed, the goods produced by some of those who were on RDS committees or the manufacturers or businessmen who guaranteed the 1860s were to find their way into the museum, albeit, albeit not always in the 19th century. As part of my research, I have traced the overlaps that occur between the Royal Dublin Society committee members, exhibitors of the 1860s and donors to the National Museum and its previous incarnations this data which is now which now exists in tabular format will inform my future research thank you very much